6 p.m. Wednesday, the day after. And this is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. You know what the day after is. Y'all Republicans now? You know, I, I know people like to be with winners. And the Republicans were such big winners. Now, I could talk for the, Jason, I could talk for the entire hour about what happened yesterday. All right. But let me start with a couple of things that have kind of evolved in me over numerous election cycles. Number one, if you're a Democrat, don't sit around and try and figure out who to blame for what happened. But all these Republicans tilting the balance. Let me tell you something. My daughter, who's 17 years old, accurately predicted what happened last night in September. All right. For a government paper she was doing during the summer. So it's not, you know, it ain't rocket science. You ain't got to be Nate Silver. Or not Nate Silver. What is this guy? Is this Nate Silver? I think it is Nate Silver. Uh, you ain't got to be Nate Silver. You be Vivica Riley. <laughs> you could do this. All right. But understand that sitting around and say, oh, this one didn't do this, and this one didn't do that, and Cuomo didn't help out this one, and this one didn't help out that one. Yo, what did you expect? And I'm going to tell you why what happened last night happened. All right? So we're clear. And this is something that is the responsibility of both Democrats and Republicans. All right? It's money. Money is what happened last night. Money and gerrymandering of, leg- of legislative, actually of congressional lines and legislative lines when necessary to ensure that what happened last night happened. Now, that doesn't count in the Senate because they don't draw district lines for the United States Senate. That's the whole state. And we talked last week about the fact that so many Americans are upset and sour and angry and blah, 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 blah. Even, by the way, as an early estimate said, that the country added like 233,000 jobs in October. We'll know more on Friday because that's when the official stuff comes out. But leave that aside for a moment. Let's say that the sentiments of the American people, this anger that they felt totally justified. All right. Let's say that. I'm not saying it's true. But let's just say that for a minute. Fine. What do you do now? I'll tell you what you do now. And Jason, I want everybody to hear me real well about this. You got knocked down. So get up. All right? Don't sit there and bemoan your fate. Don't act all groggy because somebody punched you in your chops. Get up and prepare for the next election cycle. If you're into politics to win, that's what you do. You don't moan. Oh, I couldn't get close to President Obama because people were so upset with his policies. Yeah, all right, fine. And and by the way, a lot of people who moaned like that are out of a gig today. (laughs) Okay, so let's be very clear. But the big winner last night was not the Democratic Party, and it wasn't the Republican Party. It was money. Money. Cash money. Uh, Maybe checks. (laughs) I don't know. But it was money. That's what ensured the outcome. And that's not to say that the Democrats didn't try. Jason, I got to tell you, I was getting email after email after email Purporting to be from Nancy, everybody from Nancy Pelosi to Barack Obama, begging for money. Now, I don't contribute to political campaigns because, you know, as a talk show host, I'm you know, trying to trying to have some veneer of objectivity up in here and, and have in the past. But I got to tell you, the Democrats are shill for money just as badly as the Republicans do. They may not use the same language. They may not, you know, use uh, suborn state legislators by taking them on trips to expensive resorts like the you know the way the Republican super PACs do, or Alec and those people. They may not do it that way, 
but they're still shilling for money. And the way you're going to stop the kind of nonsense that goes on in our election cycle, particularly in the midterms, is to stop the influence of money. And, you know, I I was of a mind at one time that, you know, you, you could do this and you could do that. And you could put matching funds. And blah, blah. Yo, get rid of it. Get freaking rid of it. All of it. You know, I, I, I work with a guy, Jason, you, you'll understand this. I work with a guy who's like 27 years old, all right? I'm closer to 72 than I am to 27, all right? And he said something to me today that, that made me kind of scratch my head. And if, if his attitude is the attitude of the younger generation, then money isn't the only problem we have with the electoral process. He looked at me and he said, I don't understand why people can't register and vote online. And I said, wow, you know what? <laughs> You're right. Why can't they register and vote online? Is there, a, is there some law? And, and see, the people that oppose that kind of thing will say, oh, we got to worry about voter fraud, which, of course, has led several states in this country to get into enacting what I consider to be draconian voter suppression laws. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. But until people get serious about the money, and I know, all right, I ain't stupid. I know what Citizens United allows people to do. I know. But I also know that an energized electorate can turn back Citizens United. But we got to, you know, we got to get this. Now, that doesn't mean that we, you know, jump to an absurd conclusion, in my judgment, like David Shanzer and Jay Sullivan did in the New York Times, where they say, cancel the midterms. Can't cancel the midterms? Because their thing is that two year terms for the House of Representatives just like too short to do anything. And all the Congress people end up doing is getting elected and then going out and trying to raise more money. You see how money plays the role? Yeah, they win. And then they do have to go out and raise more money. But if you extend their terms to four years, they're still going to go out and try and raise more money. Don't get it twisted. You know, a chicken with its head cut off is still going to dance around for a minute. And even if you cancel the midterms, made House members uh, uh, have four-year terms, give senators eight-year terms so everybody gets elected in an election year, that's not going to get rid of the influence of money. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But that's what people think. Now, I'm saying all this assuming... That most of you who listen to this on the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM, God love Gary Noll, I'm assuming that most of you have already gotten the results from what happened yesterday. And, you know, if you read, the, particularly the tabloids in this town, you'd think that somebody had smacked Barack Obama around to the point that he was a punch-drunk fighter. Now, he was on TV early. He didn't look like a punch-drunk fighter, but he looked like a conciliatory guy. And even the Republicans looked a little conciliatory. God love him. Kumbaya. You know, beers all around or whatever. But don't lose sight of why things are the way they are. And by the way, I, I saw some figures for voter turnout. I think they were from here in New York. It's like 32% or something like that. That's ridiculous. And and, and it can change, by the way. It can change. But, you know, people got to work at this. This is not, you know, get whipped in an election and go home and cry in your beer for two years until the presidential comes along. You can't do that. Now the people who have taken over the Senate, who already have control of the House, they got to do something. And Mitch McConnell has already said 
the repeal of the Affordable Care Act is off the table. So now what are they going to do? Are they going to do immigration properly? No. Because their constituents don't want to do immigration properly. One thing that people realize, and I think this was, I heard Ralph Nader talking about this last night, as a matter of fact, a mistake the Democrats made was that they had a guilt-edged issue in raising the minimum wage, which, by the way, was raised in several places that elected Republicans. But the Democrats didn't go hard enough on raising the minimum wage because they were scared that the electorate didn't want it or that their business friends who fund their campaigns didn't want it. We're going to get into business a little bit later on, too. Because, uh, hey, Jason, you know Thanksgiving's coming up? You know that some department stores are making their people come in on Thanksgiving? Day? We'll tell you who those miscreants are. We don't advocate boycotts here. <laughs> but, yo, I, that, that's, that's right. Now, we got a very special guest who's coming up in about three minutes or so. I'm going to talk about a study that he was the lead author of. And it has, in part, to do with fracking. You know, people have always framed the fracking debate around the issue of what it does to water, in particular communities where fracking takes place. You know, the, the water table. And that's a legitimate concern. But our guest conducted a study in five different states, a study, by the way, that the oil industry and gas industries are already trying to flog and say that it's not scientific. But he says water is only one part of the problem. That air is a problem, a serious problem. So we're going to be talking to him very shortly. His name is Dr. David O. Carpenter. He's the director of the SUNY Albany Institute for Health and the Environment. And he's the senior author of this particular study. And I, I have to say, when I spoke to him yesterday, I said, Doctor, I don't understand why your study has not gotten more play in the media. You know, you, you could you know, take a minute from showing pictures of Kim Kardashian or who's, who's that other one? Amanda Burns, the one who's supposed to be crazy or something? I don't know. I shouldn't say crazy. Mentally disturbed. How about that? You could take a minute off of that and talk about this study, but nobody does. Nobody does. And I don't know why nobody does. Uh, we're also going to talk later on about a huge rally that took place over this past weekend in Houston, Texas. That rally has led me, Jason, to check Houston off my must-visit list. <laughs> okay? No, 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 no. We're going to talk a little bit about Brittany Maynard, a lady who has more guts than most people I know including me, who decided to die with dignity. We're going to talk about the issue of race in the NYPD with the brouhaha going on there. We're going to talk about the minimum wage, and we're also going to talk about some spy in Britain who says that big tech firms are enabling terrorists. <laughs> scary, scary stuff. But right now, we have a very special guest who's going to talk about some other scary stuff in point of fact, and that is the toxicity that apparently is in the air around large oil and gas operations and as a result of fracking. He's the author of a new study, uh, uh, by the way, a peer-reviewed study, and his name is Dr. David O. Carpenter, Director of the SUNY Albany Institute for Health and the Environment. He's the senior author of that study, Dr. Carpenter, thank you so much for being with us. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Let me start out uh, by asking you about one unusual part of the study, and apparently a part of the study that has the oil and gas industry questioning its scientific value, and that is you actually, during the study, which, by the way, what was it, five states, am I right? That's correct, yes. Oh, okay. Um, you used, actually, people in certain communities that were near these operations to test their own air. Explain a bit why you did that. Well, we did that for several reasons. The first one is that it's the people that live near these sites that suffer the health effects from the contaminants in the air. And they know when they feel ill, 
when they smell bad odors, when they have symptoms, when they hear something that's unusual. And so they are going to be able to identify times when there's uh, an unusual amount of emissions from contaminants. Now, uh, there's relatively little monitoring, and there are a variety of reasons for that, but the monitoring that's done is done by the states, Mm -hmm. and it's usually done without a lot of funding. It's usually monitoring over long periods of time, so you get an average over long periods of time. The people that live near these sites complain that they suddenly get ill when the air smells bad. So we wanted to know what is in the air when the air smells bad or when they have a symptom that they attribute to breathing the air. Now that's interesting because that would seem to indicate uh, that long-term effects or, or monitoring for long periods of time isn't the only way to do this. That, 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 what, did, what did you look at? Were you looking at, at short-term situations? Uh, when, when well, yes, we were looking at short-term situations. Sort of, it was a worst-case scenario, mm-hmm. and we make that very clear in the paper that this is not a long-term average, but this is a sample taken at a time when there's some reason to believe that there are high concentrations. And boy, did we find high concentrations of dangerous chemicals. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm looking at this article, and it says, in 40% of the air air samples, laboratory tests found benzene, formaldehyde, or other toxic substances associated with oil and gas production above the levels the federal government considers safe for brief or longer-term exposure. And it says far above in some cases. How far above? Well, in the case of benzene, at one site, it was 477,000 times what? above the standard that's supposed to be safe. 477,000 times. Oh, my God. So this is enormous. And benzene is known to cause cancer in people. Now, for formaldehyde, another chemical in the air that's known to cause ca- cancer in people, we found levels that were about six times higher than that that would increase the risk of cancer above one in a hundred, one in ten thousand times. When the standard is that EPA has for cancer risk assessment is that you don't want to increase rates of cancer greater than one in a million times because one in a million usually can't even monitor that. So these are enormous concentrations of chemicals in the air that are known to cause cancer. Incredible. Incredible. Our doc, our guest is Dr. David O. Carpenter, director of the SUNY Albany Institute for Health and the Environment, and he's senior author of a very troubling and disturbing study about the, uh, the quality of air around oil and gas uh, production sites, as well as fracking. So you, you took into account both? Is that what you did? Well, you know, this is a limited study. We only had 40-some samples. They were from 11 different sites. Uh, and they were in five states. So by no means did we monitor all of the sites in all of the states. But the results we have, we think, are likely to reflect what happens everywhere around these sites. And we, some of these were around fracking sites. The, they were taken in people's backyards. Some of them were taken in public areas near wells, near compressor stations. Uh, and they were always taken when the community members had some reason to feel concern. Uh, and, and so it is a worst-case scenario, but this worst case is a very, very dangerous and very high level of exposure. Well, I mean, in one case, uh, there was a woman who was losing her hair, right? Well, yes. And the, now, the symptoms that people report are multiple, and that wasn't the major part of our study. Our major part of the study was simply to make the measurements of the things in the air. But people complain of things like losing their hair, like nosebleeds. Now, let's think about nosebleeds, for example. Formaldehyde is basically embalming fluid. Yes. If you're breathing in formaldehyde, and unlike the air samples, our formaldehyde samples were taken over eight hours, so it was a longer average. But if you're breathing in formaldehyde, it's going to pickle your nasal epithelium. And then we found high levels of hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide is the gas that smells like rotten eggs. Mm. 
but it combines with water in your nose to make a weak acid. So you've pickled your nasal epithelium, then you add an acid to it. Is it any wonder that people that have never had nosebleeds before get recurrent nosebleeds? Others complain of of sore throats, of uh, sinus infections, of asthma attacks, and all of these compounds that are volatile organic compounds are known to be irritative to the respiratory system. Still other people complain that their brain doesn't really work quite right. They can't remember things. They, wow. They're doing stupid things that they normally wouldn't do. And many of these volatile organic compounds, benzene included, but methane, hexane, xylene, heptane, uh, all of the different things that are in the air, are known from occupational studies to have depressive effects on brain activity. So while we haven't systematically looked at the symptoms, it was because people were feeling symptoms or smelled things or, or heard things that they took these samples at those particular points in time. Dr. Carpenter, um, when a, a study like this comes out, you know there's going to be a response from the petroleum industry, the oil and gas people, and of course in this case there was. They specifically criticized uh, the use and involvement of an organization called Global Community Monitor, which actually trained the residents in how to take the air samples, and there was uh, an email sent uh from uh, the, actually not the Independent Petroleum Association, but uh, an organization called Energy In Depth. And it says, quote, it is, it's difficult to see how Global Community Monitor, a group that dubiously claims no amount of regulation will ever make fracking safe, could make, so, could make a constructive, constructive contribution within the scientific community. How do you respond when you hear that? Sounds like they're well, I your just, I reject that that, that uh, kind of statement totally. Now, let's take my own personal position. Uh, I am not irrevocably opposed to fracking. Mm -hmm. I am opposed to fracking that is not done safely. And our results show that in five different states, fracking is not done safely. You know, one of the problems here is that Congress passed an exemption for the oil and gas industry from all the regulation that everybody else has to abide by. And I understand the reasoning that they wanted to have us be less dependent on Mideast oil. But the fracking industry, the oil and gas industry, does not have to abide by the Clean Air Act, a federal act that every other industry, every other corporation has to abide by. All of these levels we measured are in, uh, well, I shouldn't say all of them, 60% of the sites we measured did not exceed federal standards. But the 40% that did, and some at this enormous exceedance, uh, these are, would not be allowed under the Clean Air Act. Mm -hmm. So in, in some regards, the fault lies with Congress, because this industry should not be exempted from the same regulation that everybody else has to abide by. Dr. Carpenter, when these arguments get framed in the macro sense, they seem to get framed roughly in the following manner. Fracking or, or even oil and gas production is about economic development. It's about creating jobs. And on the other hand, of course, there's the question of the public health. Uh, I mean, at some point, uh, it, it's almost like climate science. You know, people people say, look, we, you know, we got to do something or else. But other people say it's all nonsense. There's no scientific basis for it. How do you rebut the notion that whatever exemptions the oil and gas industry may have or whatever, they're all necessary in order to, as you mentioned, lessen dependency on, on Middle East oil and to create jobs? Uh, you know, this is just nonsense. This is like going back to the old days before we had any federal regulation. Uh, you know, all of us are totally in favor of economic development and creating jobs. But are you going to create jobs where the people that live near the site are ill? Now, one thing our study did not address, but if the people living within, in some cases, 2,000 uh, feet from the site are being exposed to these levels of contaminants, 
what's happening to the poor guys that are working on the site, are working on the fracking well? They're going to be exposed at much higher levels. None of our sites were taken from the actual land that the oil and gas industry was, was drilling or doing their thing. We weren't allowed on it. So, you know, this is really an issue. Uh, we go back to the old days of smokestacks and you can do anything you damn well please. Uh, those days are past. And we have to always balance risks versus benefits. I am totally unconvinced that the oil and gas industry cannot develop the technology to do fracking safely. And until they can do fracking safely, they should be held to all of the same standards that everybody else is held to. Well, you know, Doctor, you're in Albany, and Governor Cuomo has been toying with the idea of either allowing or not allowing fracking for the better part of a year. And, of course, it's an election year, which I guess is understandable if you're a politician. If you were advising Governor Cuomo at this point whether or not to allow fracking to move forward in New York State or to, uh, at least for the short term, not allow it to happen, what would you say to him? Well, I would certainly say don't allow it to happen in New York York State until there is evidence that it can be done safely and that the industry is taking the precautions not to allow these high concentrations of dangerous contaminants to get into the air. Now, the, the other reason for that is that the natural gas that's below New York State is not going to go anywhere. It's going to be there five years from now if we have to wait that long to frack safely. But uh, they, there is just no excuse to uh, expose people to these things. Now, the cancer is not going to appear tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's going to appear for benzene, leukemia is the cancer of greatest concern, usually a latency of five to ten years. The other cancers, respiratory cancers, the latency is probably 10 to 20 years, maybe even 30 years. So this is something that's going to have long-term impact. It's going to have long-term costs. You can't just consider the economic impact of the moment, the sale of natural gas. You have to consider what this is going to do with our health care expenses 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if we proceed to do things in ways that cause disease in people. I, I have to ask you, and, you know, maybe I'm in a better position to answer this question than you are, but I have been stunned, and I told you this when I first called you, I've been stunned by the lack of coverage of this thing in, in, in you know, the, the, the press that I end up accessing, and I access a pretty fair amount of press. Uh, I, I just don't see a lot of talk about, I don't see a lot of articles about your particular study. Why do you think that is? Why do you think nobody's giving you any play here? Well, I know at least in one case where we were originally scheduled to be on one of the major networks' evening news that the industry got to the company and prevented us from from uh, from our story being told. Oh, they wouldn't do that, uh, would they? <laughs> oh, no, of course not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this kind of story has to be told. It needs to be told. It needs to be heard by people everywhere. And it needs to be understood that, uh, no, I'm not sure what your comment about the, some of our the people involved in the study being totally opposed to fracking. That certainly is not my position. Oh, no, no, no. That, that was an email that was sent by this group that is funded by the Independent Petroleum Association. Sure. Yeah, they? they're, they're trying to discredit our study. Yes. You know, the point is that we always have to balance risks versus benefit. Mm-hmm. And it's a judgment. Now, you know, if somebody agrees to take a dangerous job where they know they're going to be exposed to something that is going to harm harm them. Let's take, for example, being a football quarterback, uh, knowing that the more times you're hit, the more likely you are to go, develop Alzheimer's disease at age 40. Uh, you know, you get paid for a lot of money, you make that decision. Yes, the, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk. The majority of the people in our study that were making these samples, that were suffering these diseases, they're not the people that owned the land and made all the money. They're the people that don't own the land, that live next door to these sites, that don't have enough money to move, and they're the ones that are being harmed by that. That's both unfair and, in my judgment, immoral. We need to have federal regulation of this industry. We need to have the industry take steps 
to reduce the releases of these compounds, and we need to protect the innocent people that are being harmed by them. Dr. David O. Carpenter, thank you so much, first of all, for the work that you've done, and thank you so much for joining us here on the Progressive Radio Network. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I enjoyed being with you. You take care. Take care. That is Dr. David O. Carpenter. He's director of the SUNY Albany Institute for Health and the Environment. He's a senior author of a study. By the way, the five states where the air was monitored include Arkansas, Colorado, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wyoming. And I, I hope some of you all heard the passion in Dr. Carpenter's voice about this. And he said he's not unalterably opposed to fracking, which some people are. Uh, but he is opposed to 400 and some odd thousand times the amount of benzene being in the air around these sites. Give me a call if you have uh, an opinion about this, or if you want to talk about the elections just passed. Our number is 888-874-4888. Can we do a little musical interlude there? All right, Jason, Jason's on a case over there. And we're going to talk about some of the stories that I told you we were going to talk about a little earlier. That number, back 27 minutes before the hour of seven o'clock 888-874-4888 uh you know i i kind of sort of said what i had to say about these elections earlier in the broadcast uh but there's work to do y'all a lot a lot of work to do and here's a story that's indicative of the lots of work that needs to be done over this past weekend sunday evening to be exact uh, there was apparently a rally of thousands of people who are working against, repeat, against LGBT equality. They had a rally in defense of, quote, religious freedom. It was called I Stand Sunday. It was hosted by the Grace Community Church. Pastor of that church, a guy named Steve Riggle, was one of five pastors originally subpoenaed for his role in challenging the LGBT-inclusive Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, or HERO. Uh, those subpoenas have since been withdrawn uh, by the mayor uh, of Houston. But, I mean, uh, it apparently was a Christian worship service. How the deuce? And I'm, I'm saying that because I don't want to say... What I, what's really on my... How do these people stand up and say that this is a Christian thing to do? To say that their religious freedom trumps the human rights of a group of people based on their sexual orientation and only their sexual orientation, gender identity, however you want to describe it. How do you do that? How do you form your lips to say that that is in any way, shape, or form representative of Christianity. Well, they did. Mike Huckabee showed up. Some guy from Fox News. Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty. I knew there was a reason why I never watched that show. It's like, yo, 
Who are these people? And, and by the way, their thing is that their religious freedom is under attack from the LGBT community and their assertion of equality under the law. See, because their thing is, I don't want to have to deal with gays if I don't feel like it. And my religious freedom is how I manage to do that. Dealing with gays is against my religious beliefs. Or so they say. Now, how they identify gay people, I don't know. I really don't know. But, uh, you know, they, 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 uh, there's one organization that was there, Alliance Defending Freedom. He highlighted uh, a case like bakeries, florists, photographers, and other for-profit wedding chapels. And he says they're victims for refusing to provide the same services for same-sex weddings that they provide for different sex weddings. So they don't want the business? They don't want gay money? <laughs> Is that what they're trying to say? Because uh, I don't understand. Then some other people said that HGTV refused to produce a house-flipping television show because of their anti-LGBT positions. They're under no law. There's no law that says that HGTV has to broadcast your show if you're a homophobe and you're public with it. Yo, I'm straight, okay? But if I knew some guy, if I ran a television network, and some clown people came to me and said, well, you know, part of our thing is we, we just don't like homosexuals. It's part of our religious beliefs. Okay, fine. Unless I'm running a religious network, what has that got to do with anything? I don't understand it. And, and uh, I've gone off about this in the past, too. This whole notion of the homosexual lifestyle 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 hey jason what is the homosexual lifestyle can anybody say what the homosexual lifestyle actually is yeah of course they do they do everything that we would do there is no homosexual lifestyle it is a choice about who you sleep with and who you love but that's not a lifestyle it isn't under no other circumstances in American life would your choice of lover be a lifestyle. I mean, I guess maybe if guys cheat on their wives or women cheat on their husbands, is that the adulterous lifestyle there, Jason? Is that, is that what we're supposed to be talking about here? Because I don't get it. And the fact that thousands of people decided to come together in Houston and, and run this crap means Houston's off my must-visit list. I mean, I, you know, I, I, obviously there are people there that, that are trying to do the right thing. Even the mayor down there, Anise Parker, trying to do the right thing. But, I mean, how, how do you do that? How do you do that? Uh, this one pastor, Pastor Willie Davis... Uh, says that LGBT non-discrimination protections are special rights. Civil Rights Act of 1964 is about equal rights, not special rights. How can you call something equal, says Pastor Davis, when it divides? Well, wait a minute. Equal rights for black people divided too. Last I checked, I mean, I was a kid at the time, but, you know, they, they blew up churches. They sick dogs on black people? That divided. Didn't stop people for, from pressing for it. And then he says, how can you call something right when it's all wrong? And, and who made Pastor Willie Davis the arbiter of whether the LGBT community is right or wrong? Uh, I mean, it's just... Now, the LGBT community in Houston countered I Stand Sunday with Positive Impact Day. And they started, uh, they spent the afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, collecting cl winter clothes for the less fortunate. Now that I can get with. 
the rest of this stuff. It's just, it, it, it just, and I got another story about homophobia, but that's in the two, the ridiculous part of the show, which is at the end. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to run it right now. How do people feel about the decision made by 29 year old Brittany Maynard to end her own life? Uh, I have to say, she died with a dignity that I think that most people can only hope for. She wrestled with the decision. At one point, she was very close to saying, I'm not going to take my own life. She went to Oregon because Oregon is one of a handful of states that allows you to end your life in this fashion. Now, the woman had terminal brain cancer. I think they, once she was originally diagnosed, they told her she had six months to live. Her husband stood by her side throughout this. And she said, 29 years old, on Facebook, goodbye to all my dear friends and family that I love. Today is the day I have chosen to pass away with dignity in the face of my terminal illness. Oregon, Montana, New Mexico, Washington, and Vermont have laws that allow you to do this. Uh, at the end... And this is why I say this is a woman, I think, of rare guts. God rest her soul. You know, Catholic Church ain't happy. Saying that she, you know, she had no business doing this. But she said at the end, in her last words on Facebook, Goodbye, world. Spread good energy. Pay it forward. Incredible story. In my judgment, an incredible story. One that took guts to publicize, to be honest with you. She was from California. She did have to go to Oregon, obviously, to end her life. And there'll be a you know this is a one day one news cycle controversy about her decision, but she's at peace. What would we all face our end with the dignity that she did? Closer to home, here in New York, the question of race and the NYPD has reared its ugly head. Yet again, for those of you who don't know about this story, uh, there was a guy who was, until very recently, chief of department in the NYPD, one of the higher-ups in the NYPD. His name is Philip Banks. He was the highest-ranking black officer in the NYPD. And the current police commissioner was giving him a new gig which on its face appeared to be a promotion. Okay. Uh, he was going to become first deputy commissioner, or first dep, as they like to say. He was going to be succeeding Rafael Pinero, who was forced to retire six weeks ago. Now, Phil Banks and Rafael Pinero, in addition to having the commonality of being people of color, were both folks who were talked about when Bill de Blasio first, Mayor Bill de Blasio first uh, took office, they were in the running to become the police commissioner. So long story short, uh, Phil Banks thought and thought he had been promised by Bill Bratton, the commissioner, that certain high-level NYPD officials would be reporting to him in his new job. Bill Bratton said no. Sorry, that's not how it's going to go. Phil Banks, feeling the job was then pretty much ceremonial, quit and created a firestorm. And, and I have to say this because it keeps cropping up. Gave at least one tabloid in this town the rationale to go after everybody from Rachel Nordlinger to Al Sharpton to First Lady Shirlane McRae. Now, all of them are black folks. Two of them jumped to the defense of Phil Banks, that being Reverend Sharpton and Shirlane McRae. And that tabloid ran a story over the weekend that said that Shirlane McRae berated her husband, the mayor, and said that Bratton couldn't be trusted. Had a tirade, so the paper said. Charlene McRae, well, actually first Mayor de Blasio, held a rare Sunday news conference with Police Commissioner Bill Bratton, 
say, no, nah, nah, my wife never said that. The Post, of course, stood by its story, which, by the way, was entirely attributed to unnamed sources. Uh, now, hey, Jason, figure this out for me. A personal conversation between husband and wife. Who do you think would have heard something that they would then tell the New York Post about? Nope. Nope. The security detail. And who's the security detail for the mayor? NYPD. Okay. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm just saying. All right. If it was me... I'd have a new security detail next week. (laughs) All right, that's just me. Uh, Because to me, there's no other way that a story like that would get fed to a tabloid. Um, And and you'd have to wonder about the motives of whoever fed that tabloid said information. But it does, between Pinheiro's forced retirement and Phil Banks up and saying, I'm done here, and a couple of other folks in the corrections department, who have also left, it is bringing up the question of African Americans and other peoples of color at the top levels of law enforcement. The top levels of law enforcement. Let me say this. Black folks, and this is true both in corrections and in the NYPD, when you got folks that have like 30 years of experience, and all these people do, as a matter of fact, I think Pinheiro got, had like 40 years of experience. When you had that much time in, that means you came in at a time when blacks and Latinos at the top level were in extremely short supply. I repeat, extremely short supply. And you worked your way up the ranks. And you developed the law enforcement equivalent of muscle memory about policing, about the communities the NYPD purports to serve, all of that. And Phil Banks and Rafael Pinheiro and William Clemens in corrections, they all had that muscle memory. Now, Commissioner Bratton today named a gentleman by the name, I believe his name is Ben Tucker, to replace uh, Phil Banks. I believe... Mr. Tucker is the, or was, the Deputy Commissioner of Training. Worked, at, worked for President Obama for a minute, too. Has some, has some national street cred, if you know what I mean. And he's black. But it does bring up some questions. See, because the black community, and specifically African-American politicians, they reach a certain comfort level with having black folks and Latinos in high positions in the law enforcement community. Okay, so when something like Eric Garner happens, they can say, oh, wait a minute, let me get on the phone and talk to Chief Banks about this. And they can pick up the phone and they get Chief Banks. And and, uh, some of this has to do with racial solidarity, I guess. But trust me on this, Racial solidarity is nothing new to the NYPD, okay? Let me be very clear. And whether it be Rafael Pinheiro, who, I got to be honest with you, if I was Bill de Blasio, he would have been my first choice, Rafael Pinheiro, to be police commissioner. Um, because I think he earned it. And yes, even though I'm not Latino, I think I would have made him the commissioner and immediately made Phil Banks' first debt as a first order of business in the NYPD. Of course, Rafael Pinheiro, if he was commissioner, probably could pick his own first debt, but I think it's important that you set a particular type of tone. Now, Bill de Blasio chose not to go that way. It's not to say Bill Bratton is some ogre, or he's creepy, or he's, you know, can't be trusted as, as, you know, uh, First Lady Shalane McRae actually has gone to more than one outlet now. said, no, I never said that. I got no problems with Bill Bratton. I think he's doing a good job. Of course, the whole broken windows thing is, 
a little, how best to put this, Jason, problematical? <laughs> no such word. But it is problematic. There is no doubt about that. All right, I got a couple of more stories, and I got a little bit of time, so I'm going to run them by you real quick. I mentioned earlier in the broadcast that there are a store or two that are forcing their workers to come in on Thanksgiving Day. Not on just on Thanksgiving Day, Jason, but at 6 o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving Day. Not 6 o'clock in the morning Black Friday. 6 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, on Thanksgiving Day. Stores will remain open, the Kmart stores, 42 straight hours. They close at midnight on Friday. Now, Sears stores, owned by the same company, will also open, although later, with hours starting at 6 p.m. However, Kmart and Sears stores in Maine, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island will not open because they have laws that prohibit big, big box stores, department stores, and large supermarkets from opening on the holiday. All right, so I can scratch Houston off my must-visit list, but I could visit Maine, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. I was actually in Massachusetts not that long ago. This is barbarism. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I, you know, I like Thanksgiving, mainly because, like, it's a family holiday. For me, it's a chance to get together, you know, with friends, loved ones. We're traveling some distance this Thanksgiving, as we have the last few. And I cherish that. Plus, I, I have a long-standing Jones for turkey, okay? I love me some turkey. And I, 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 first of all, Sears is just about broke. I don't know what they think they'll accomplish by staying open for 42 straight hours. Because, uh, ironically enough, uh, there's no evidence that shows that they actually make more money. Last year, sales didn't get any extra boost at those that opened on Thanksgiving. Duh, so why not do it again? <laughs> what? What? What is wrong with people? But, I'm, you know, I, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to be put in a position of saying I'm bad-mouthing Sears or Kmart or any of the rest of these people. But I just, I just find this kind of thing... Uh, condescending because trust me the heads of these companies they ain't going in the stores on thanksgiving day they're turning their behinds over in bed hopefully with their wives next to them. i'm sorry i'm sorry i shouldn't have said that uh <laughs> even jason's shaking his head now you've gone too far hey how about we have a little milk of human kindness out here If you didn't get a sales bump last year when you tried this crap, how about you just open at 6 o'clock on Friday morning? So that, you know, people can paw all over each other and punch each other out and stampede each other to get those early morning holiday deals on Black Friday. See, but, uh, Jason, I hope people don't think I'm, I'm some kind of creep for this. I detest the whole notion of Black Friday. I really do. And it's not just because I'm black. I detest the notion of that kind of encouragement of wild consumerism. I, which, by the way, I don't do Black Friday. All right? I may pay a little extra. A little. But I don't do Black... Jason, you do Black Friday? You do Black Friday. Nope, you don't either? All right. Thank God. I got a fellow traveler over here. Why do we have to do this? But it's the same question I have about why the Daily News has to run so many pictures of Kim Kardashian. And now her mama with some young dude. <laughs> what? 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 So, uh, Sears, Kmart, <laughs> that's all I can say. Because uh, other places have decided to close. All right, just so you know. All right. American Girl, Burlington, Dillard's, Costco, GameStop, Nordstrom, Patagonia, REI, TJX, TJ Maxx, and Marshalls have all closed on the holiday. Now, I'm just saying, if you have a concern for what are generally low-wage workers, 
you might want to think about where you're going to shop. Either Thanksgiving. Who shops on Thanksgiving Day anyway? Everybody watches football on Thanksgiving Day. But, hey, I guess that's just me. Uh, The minimum wage, which, by the way, a lot of these people work for in these stores. It passed in a number of states. It passed in a number of red states. And that's a good thing. After all of the years, you know, this reminds me of smoking. This reminds me of big tobacco back in the day. No, there are no health risks. No, there's no problem with cigarette smoking until there was. No, we can't raise the minimum wage. We'll have to lay people off. No, we can't do that. No, the economy won't do it. No, our wages are competitive until they shut up and said, okay, I guess we're going to have to raise the minimum wage. They ain't going broke. Ain't nobody missing no tea times. And I'm I'm talking about T-E-E, not T-E-A. All right, let's be clear. Folks aren't losing, ain't missing no meals because people are making a little bit more money an hour. Uh, Arkansas, they want eight fifty, a princely sum, if I ever heard it. And, and ironically enough, you know they're trying to trying to get fifteen bucks a pop in San Francisco, and there's no business groups actually opposing it. So, uh, you know, and that's because. The tech industry has taken over San Francisco. They've gentrified everything, and, and people ain't happy about that. So the last thing they need to do is be jumping up opposing an increase in the minimum wage. God bless America. Now, I, I'm going to do this one real quick. This is just, Jason, going to be a glancing blow. There's some clown by the name of Robert Hannigan, who's the director of GCHQ which is Britain's Electronic Intelligence Agency. The other day, he castigated the American companies that dominate the Internet for providing the, quote, command and control networks of choice for terrorists and criminals. And he also talked bad about that commie bum Edward Snowden. (laughs) Sorry, I don't really mean that. I'm just saying that's what they're doing. And he's saying, essentially, that... These big tech giants, these big internet providers, need to cooperate with spies so that they can get what they want, so they can stop the terrorists in their tracks. At the expense, by the way, of what little right to privacy a few of us have less. That's, I, 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 I ain't with it. I ain't with it. I'm sorry. It's just like... Not not in my DNA. All right, to the ridiculous. You know, and again, this is one of those situations. Homophobia. Fortunately, this wasn't in the U.S. This was in Russia. Mother Russia! Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> this is so stupid. Uh, the Ru- a Russian holding company removed a giant iPhone statue outside St. Petersburg University this past weekend because it's public propaganda for sodomy. That came just days after Apple CEO Tim Cook announced that he is gay. ZEFS, which translates to Western European Financial Union, explained their decision for removing the statue. The head of the company, whose name I can't even pronounce, says it's clear that iPhones are more dangerous than cigarettes or drugs. When Apple, quote, becomes a symbol of sodomistic sin, reasonable people in the world will start rejecting Apple products en masse. Okay, whatever your name is, I ain't one of them, okay? I'm still doing Apple. And I'm glad Tim Cook came out of the closet. And, uh, you know, if you can't figure out anything else to do with the statue, send it to my house, all right? <laughs> it's time for me to get out of here. My thanks to my good friend Jason Taubenfeld for keeping us on the case. We'll be back to do this all over again next Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern. You know, the clock's changed now. So it's 6 p.m. Eastern time. Glad you've been with us. This is the Mark Riley Show. See you next week.